Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. I got a phone call last night from Pastor around 4 p.m. saying that everyone was out of town, him, Mike, Charles is on a hunting trip or something, and that I needed to step in. So if, if this goes past 15 minutes, I'm going to count that as a win, because um, I haven't <laughs> prepped too much for this. Uh, but even if I'm just up here 30 seconds and someone gets a little bit closer to God from what's said, then that is, that is the win, right? So... Similar to, to last week, if you were here, if the, some of the information seems redundant, talking about God's truth and his righteousness, then the, the goal is to, 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 to be glad about that, that he is a righteous God, to delight in his righteousness and his absolute truth. And on the same note, is that rest in it, right? It, it should give us reason to not be, to have some freedom, more freedom in life and freedom in Christ. So some, some of these definitions can be a little disappointing if you've gone through because they seem to be... Um, self-explaining, right? If we talk about God, uh, you know, God's love, and we say, well, God is love, and that's can be a little not satisfying when you wanted a whole lot more. Um, when, you know, the Israelites ask God, who am I? And he says, I am. Uh, well, just imagine if you um, were going to a party, and they said, pretend your name's Tony, and they say, hey, Tony, you're going to be late to the party, and you said, I can't be late to the party. I am the party, right? And so that's Really, the idea here is that when you're talking about God and these different attributes, well, he is love. He's the embodiment of all that. He is life. It's really impossible to describe it outside of him. He is the embodiment of truth, absolute truth. He is the embodiment of righteousness. So um, didn't have time for a PowerPoint. So some of the scriptures I'll have, you may have this handout I'll be going through um, and they should be listed in order of appearance as I go through them. Um, but if not, if you miss one, please go back. In fact, actually, I beg you uh, <laughs> to go back this week. And if you've got a devotion, just relook at some of these scriptures and the, the actual context that they're in. Because some of them I'll just be kind of mentioning in passing. You just want to know what they were really, really about. So first, going to talk about God's truth. First John 5 and 20. If, if you're... Uh, if you're Watching online, you may, you may need to get your electronic Bible up because we may be zooming through some of these. Uh, what, sorry, pray first before helping in the sermon. Um, God, thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to talk about you, to learn more about you. Um, humble us all, speaker and listener. Um, help us to learn more about you, grow closer to you. Um, because of what's said, and open our hearts to receive this and, and tell the word to others. Amen. 1 John 5 and 20. All right, so it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And I believe all these are ESV here. There's no one text I'm going to come from, and this will probably be the only one I really explain, but John's here at the end of his letter, and he's just really talking about some core values of the Christian's faith, things we should know. And he's talking about God as truth and Jesus being God, him being truth as well, and really pull four things out of this, right? There at the end, he says he's the true God and eternal life. 
God is the true God. Just hitting on some things from last week. There's no other God like him. He's the only one self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, um, self-existing, all the things we've talked about in this whole series. Um, the practicality of truth, God doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He's not a trickster. He's not out to get you. He's, he is true in, in what he says. Um, verse under that, John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a popular verse, and we're talking about how if, if God is truth, then, then following him is the, the true way we ought to live. To walk in truth is to walk in a way where you are following God. And Jesus says, like, this is, this is the only way um, that should be. And the last one I really want to put a pin in and talk about for a little bit is that God should be our ultimate absolute source of truth. And what am I saying when I say that? I mean, when you're making decisions, trying to figure out right from wrong, that God and his word should be the absolute truth, the final authority, uh, the X factor in your decision making. Even if it seems silly, if we were to have some clear instruction, I'm not picking on you, Nate, just uh, don't wear green shirts. It's what I wrote down in my notes. Uh, God says, don't wear green shirts. Then really, you don't have too many excuses to ever wear a green shirt. If that was the clear instruction from him, and he's the absolute truth. Even if you say it's harmless, what's it doing? Well, why don't I? But that's, you know, we can come up with all these excuses, but the basis of your thinking on this issue is says, well, God has instructed us not to wear green shirts. And so this is important for us. We've got an election coming up in a couple days. This isn't an election sermon, but it's big questions on what's right in the world, right? What should be legal? Uh, marijuana, abortion, marriages, all these different things. When we think about how, what should my opinion on these things be? How should I vote? God, God's word should be your absolute source of truth when it comes to deciding these things. Um, what often happens is True to the, the nature of the day, our absolute source of truth often ends up just being our political party. Whatever they say do, like, that's what I'm going to do. Our source of truth sometimes ends up being our denomination. Whatever they tell me I should believe in, that's what I'm going to believe in. And God's saying he would like us to come to his word and figure out what is, what is he actually saying about this issue. So communication with others is a big way. We need to practice the sense of absolute truth. Um, oftentimes on the same issues, you see someone's lifestyle and you may want to classify it as sinful, ungodly, ethical, criminal, doesn't matter what it is. Say you are right. Say you are 100% right. What that person is doing is criminal, is sinful. That is the human truth. But we're talking about absolute truth and how we ought to walk in truth. That doesn't give us the right to treat them any way we want. Just because maybe truly they have done something simple. Their lifestyle, their choice was wrong. And you, you see this in, all throughout the scripture. Jesus doesn't, he sees uh, the woman, uh, uh, sucks, sorry, the woman caught in the act of adultery. She was wrong. And he told her she was wrong. But he says, I'm not going to stone you. He goes to the tax collector, knows he's wrong. It still doesn't stop him. So, hey, let's get dinner. So if you are operating in life in a way that where you just want to be like, well, I'm all about the Bible and what the Bible says is the final word, and you're saying this gives you a license to treat people a certain way, you are not about the Bible. You are about being, you're trying to be God's enforcer, and he hadn't called you to that. 
he's called us to love people. That, that is the absolute truth. Again, true, it is true that person may have sinned. It might be criminal, unethical, every label you could put it, but it's not just about is it true. Absolute truth says, how would Jesus react with this person? And sometimes that gets a little tricky because it seems like what Jesus would do is like hypocritical and breaking his own laws. And he runs into this with the Pharisees and they see him. They say, hey, you're working on the Sabbath. That's wrong. You're supposed to be the super righteous person and you're breaking your own laws. Right. And Jesus tells them, well, if you're just focused on the words on paper, scroll, papyrus, whatever they had, then then, yes, I'm working on the Sabbath. But the absolute truth of this is this isn't about just working on the Sabbath. And none of you would not help your friend if they needed it on the Sabbath. None of you would not feed a hungry person if they needed it on the Sabbath. So the absolute truth carries more weight than what we can just see as human truth. This needs to carry into our arguments and our relationships. And I say this because I am a prime culprit of this. So I'm saying this if you're anything like me, like you want to, like what's right and what's true in the situation, like is what matters. There's plenty of times I'm arguing with Carrie, and I know 100% she is wrong. And I could, I know it. There's no question about it. This is an objective fact. And I could prove it eight different ways. Nine if you gave me time to think about it. But, and so that, that's the truth. That, that's, that's true. That's the human truth. But the absolute truth, walking in the way of truth, says that doesn't matter. And nowhere in the, the, the role of the husband or wedding vows are you called to prove your point to your wife. You are called to love your wife. And that may mean letting some of that stuff go about just wanting to make your point in the argument or just being right, right? She, she could go on and on and on about this if, if she were up here, but she ain't. <laughs> and just that's something we, we, we don't really need to remember. And I'm saying, spouse, but any relationship that you're in where it's so easy to just say, well, I'm about the truth. It's about logic and facts. It's not about feelings. Okay, well, sit there. If we're going to follow that, the absolute truth says when we're looking at how God lived, how Jesus lived, we see a man who, when he could have easily fought back, didn't. But human truth says when you fight back, can. When you look at a, a, a man, absolute truth, could have easily gotten off that cross, called down angels, defending himself. Human truth says do that every time, but he didn't. Absolute truth says I will die for someone else's sins, something I didn't even do. Human truth says, if you accuse me of something I didn't do, I'm going to argue with you to admit you didn't do it and you apologize. So, again, if you're going to say, I'm all about truth, I'm about facts, logic, be about that. Be about absolute truth. And you will get to a point where you see, you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to do what I want to do and defend myself? Or am I going to follow absolute truth and what he has called us to do? This should affect our teaching as well, absolute truth. Um, if When you say God's word is absolute truth, that ought to make you take it more seriously. That ought to make you, when you come up here, if you're up here or Bible study, even if you're just talking to a friend, when you want to talk about God's word, something about it, you're going to be joyful, happy, but just maybe a little bit more careful that 
this is how I'm handling absolute truth and how someone else is going to handle absolute truth. Some, some people, you'll grow up in a church environment, you will do anything this preacher has told you to do because you think this is the absolute truth from God. Let me show you how dangerous this can be. There is a, uh, um, growing up, I always heard the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. Heard it everywhere. Church, TED Talks, motivational speakers, leadership conferences, all this, all this, all this. And then one day, just, I like to look up stuff. I looked up the definition of insanity, and here's what I found from the dictionary. The state of not being sane. Extreme folly or unreasonableness, severely disordered state of mind, unconscious mind, lacking ability to understand, and go on and on again. Point being, none of the definitions I had heard that were the definitions of insanity. And he's like, okay. And I look, so where did we get this from? And it turns out that people still don't know. Maybe there's a Ben Franklin quote or Albert Einstein quote where they say, to do the same thing over and over again, expect different results, would be insane, yada, yada. And we've kind of just ran with it from there. So I was like, okay, they're just trying to make a point. That's cool. I can let it go. It's not that big of a deal. But then, Rodney, the unthinkable happened. I heard and started hearing some people say, Webster defines insanity as doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Webster defines, hold up, I now know something. One, there's no way you actually looked that up in a Webster's dictionary. <laughs> Even though you said you did. There's no way. Zero percent. There's a one percent chance that you did and you just decided, I don't like that definition. I'm going to just use my own still. And more than likely, you've probably just been hearing what other people have said is the definition of insanity. Said, I like it. I'm going to repeat it without checking on it for it all myself. The danger is in doing that in this position as well. Before you fix your lips to say, well, the Bible says... Just ask you, have you even cracked it open to look for what you're about to say it says? I'm not talking about studying or preaching on it. Like, do you even know that that scripture is actually in the Bible? Or are you just saying and re-quoting what other people have said? In the name of God, like absolute truth. Like, do you know that that is there? And it matters if it's absolute truth. It matters that, that you take that seriously when you teach other people. And along these lines, I think we've got to separate. This might be a little dice for some people, you know, truth from interpretations. What do I mean by that? We often say God's word is absolute truth. And then I've got this opinion about a, about a topic based on scripture, truly. And, but then we, this faulty calculation, we put them together and say, well, then my opinion is absolute truth because it's based on scripture, right? And, and in a sense, it makes sense, but we have to differentiate. God, God's word is absolute truth. Your interpretation of a scripture is not. And a lot of us, you can, you know, just in the, the short life you've had, your interpretation on some scriptures have changed four or five times already. 
So there's, there's a difference between saying God's word is absolute truth and my interpretation, my view on the scripture is absolute truth. And we say, well, some things are, are basic. Some things you just know. Well, like uh, there's 66 books in the Bible. Well, not in the Catholic Bible. There's not. And you, it'd be easy to dismiss it and say, well, that's because they're Catholic. And uh, so, it, so it doesn't count. And we just have these biases in our hair where we dismiss things that outright disagree with us. And oftentimes we say the Bible is clear on something, and then there's a literal billion other people in the world, professing Christians, that view that situation differently. What I've found, the more I've studied, gone to school, is the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And it's easy to think that a situation is simple, self-contained. It's just a little three-by-four empty room. But as I've taken classes, what I've noticed, every door I open, I never find an empty three-by-four room. I find a 30-foot hallway to 10 more doors. Now, that doesn't mean they're all right. I'm not saying just take in everything, believe any and every view and all these other things. But what I am saying is do not operate arrogantly where you say my view on the scripture is the right one. My stance on baptism is absolute truth. Even without looking or even knowing about all these others, my denomination's view on this issue is absolute truth. I do think it's helpful to get yourself under leadership that can filter out some of the noise and and get you pointed in a good direction. Again, I'm not saying you just believe in and everything and it's all valid. It's not. I do believe that almost on all these issues, there is an absolute truth, but only God knows it. You'll never know. When you're in a position to know, I don't think you'd care anymore. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, if we can argue all day what heaven's like. When I find out, it's whatever, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm cool at that point. So we decide that God needs to be our source of truth, right? But for a lot of us, that, that won't just be enough. Right? We, we, we have this sense of authority in different places that we know this is authority, our final authority. Parents, government, boss at work. And the issue there is that I know that's my final authority, but I don't like them. They're not a good authority. A lot of kids can tell you, I got to listen to my parents, but I think they're wrong about a lot of stuff. Right? That, that person, that kid, that friend they're telling me not to hang out with isn't as bad as they think they are just because they've got you know, a nose piercing or whatever it is. And so this is where God's righteousness comes in. Psalm, not moving very far, are we? We're on the third scripture. <laughs> Psalm 9, 7 through 8. I'm talking about God's righteousness for a bit. This is, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. So I picked this one because when you look at how the, 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 the Bible and its original languages have really defined righteous. It's kind of more like a, like a judicial term, like you've been at the end of court declared right. It is just, it's moral, it's upright, it's good, it's correct, um, even to the point of it's, it's of God. It is declared righteous, it's declared correct. And so Psalm is saying that this is just how God is, right? He is right. He is correct. He is morally upright. He is just. He is right in all his decisions. He is the answer, the, the most uncorrupt judge you could find. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So not just his decisions, just everything he does. He is just righteous, kind in all his ways, righteous in all his ways. 
And this may be a hard one to swallow. I think a lot of the other attributes of God we have, it's more just like accepted it. Okay, God's all-powerful. He's all-present, all these other things. It's more a matter of just accepting that truth. This one, your everyday experiences will fight you to believe that God is truly kind in all his ways. When you're sitting at that funeral, it can be hard to believe that God is righteous and kind in all his ways. When you turn on the news and, and see what you see, what's happening, what's, if he's in control, what he's allowing to happen or ordaining to happen, how can he be really righteous and kind in all his ways with this craziness, right? If, when, when you do disaster relief and you see the destruction of these tornadoes and hurricanes, how is the God in control of this righteous in all his ways, kind in all his works? And I, I don't have a good answer for you. But just I'll give you some things to think about. Often we say, you know, God, God, you should change this. The world shouldn't be like this. We shouldn't have corrupt presidents, corrupt kings. If, if you're really in control, you're all right. And I think God looks at that and he says, okay, you're right. That's a cool idea, but I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to be king. And not only I'm just going to, like, not have corrupt kings and politicians, I'm going to eliminate corruption. Not just corruption, but all sin and all death which is a much better plan and future reality than just the simple stuff we ask for, like, I want a better president, right? When you really compare the two, it's a, it's a really low goal compared to what he's actually promising. Um, what just happens is that we don't like that waiting period from when God made the promise to when he fulfilled the promise. We don't like that waiting period. But it's not that his righteousness is in question. So in that waiting period, I would suggest one thing we do, two things, two things we do. One, uh, change how we tally. Oftentimes, we look at the things that go wrong, and we tally every single thing to God. You let this bad happen, you let this bad happen, you let this bad happen. And the good things, we give them credit for like an eighth of that stuff, right? Give ourselves or someone else the credit for that. But I think if you change your tallying and said, I'm going to give, make God fault for everything that goes wrong. But if you say, I'm going to make him a credit for every good thing that went right, every time you woke up, the 120 years in between those two earthquakes where everyone was safe, all the kids were fed, the schools were safe, all those homeless people got fed, everyone in those shelters were taken care of, every day you got home safe, you would quickly run out of room to tally and you wouldn't even be able to put these numbers on the same page. It would just, the good and righteousness of God would just run away from, in three days' time, from whatever things you want to fault him with. Change how you tally. Stop giving yourself nonprofits and all this credit for these things that God does. Yes, he does it through us. Yes, but he's the one making it happen. Second thing I want you to observe is just that when the more unrighteous we are, the more we get to see his righteousness and his grace. Right? There's an example in the Bible, you know, the person who's forgiven more has shown more love. And so I want to point you to this verse in Romans 3. It's kind of confusing just to read through for the first time. Uh, so again, go home, check it out. But it's proposing the situation that, well, if, if God's righteousness is seen more by the more bad things we do, why don't we just do more bad things and let's see God's righteousness anymore? And Paul says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar. 
as it is written, though you may be justified in your words, prevail when you're a judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath in us? As in, should we not be responsible? Speaking a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if God, through my lies, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Again, I'm going to go home and break that one down a little bit longer. But we, we see that the more God forgives us, the more we see his righteousness, his love, and his mercy. And so, yes, there's, there's a lot of bad things happening in the world. But what we also in that, we see God's glory. We see that the people from the church go out and serve on those rescue missions, on those uh, disaster relief missions. We see that people are forgiven, even though they may have lived a life of sinfulness, criminal, and then they come back and they turn to God and they're a whole different person. We should be happy about seeing God's glory and righteousness in that way. So that's the, the Bible gives you that answer, Christ's righteousness, to if you think you've done a lot bad. He also gives you that answer if you don't think you've done a lot bad. It's like, well, I'm not really unrighteous, you know. Well, 1 Peter 3 and 18 says, well, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you don't think you were ever unrighteous, then do you really think that this sacrifice was for you? Right? Christ died for the unrighteous. So if you're saying Christ died for you, then at some point you have need to consider yourself unrighteous. You say, maybe I haven't done enough good. I'm anxious about things. How could God love me? Matthew 6 and 33, and, and the Lord's talking about anxiety. He says, look, you may be worried about this, this, and this, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. And if you think maybe you've been too good, right? Paul in Philippians, he's given this story. He's talking about how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous. He knew all the stuff. He knew everything. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Right? So without the righteousness of God, there is no salvation. We don't have any righteousness of our own. Back to that courtroom definition of righteousness. When we stand before God, the reason why he counts us right, just, declares us righteous is because we have walked in absolute truth and, and lived in a way that says we trust the promises of Jesus. No matter how much scripture you know, how churchy you were, it was never good enough to be counted righteousness. So, as I close here, the caution here for us to be decide, are we ever trying to take God's spot? Are we ever trusting in our own righteousness? I'm going to earn my way to heaven. Come to church, sing in the choir, preach, do good things, be a good person. I'm going to try to earn my righteousness instead of having the righteousness of Christ just freely given to me. Are we trying to be like God and that we're going to be our own source of truth? I'm going to do what I want to do. I make the rules. What's right and wrong is based on me, how I feel, and what I think is right and wrong. 
Are you getting into this habit where you are trying to know all truth? Are you obsessed with even about Bible things? I need to know everything. I need to have all these answers. I need to, I need to have the good grasp on all these angles of what is right, what is wrong. I need to be able to answer every question anyone asks me because that's my job. And in a way, when you look at what Satan first proposed to Eve, that was, that was it, right? It's like, hey, you can know stuff too. You can be like God knowing good and evil. This, this was like the original trap. You can be like God. You can know everything. You will drive yourself crazy trying to know all the answers. And it's a worthless effort because you won't ever have all the answers. And even if you manage to do it, what, you're what, 80 <laughs> at that point? <laughs> it's a worthless effort. Chasing the wind, as it said. And then we also have the danger of forgetting about God. We forget that we try to get so caught up in doing these good deeds, having our own righteousness, and forget that the point of us being righteous is, is to show love to others, to show God to others, to, to be a light in the world, to tell people, hey, God is true. When you feel like he's nowhere because this hurricane came and hit, here he comes on a busload of people with water bottles. When you feel like God is nowhere, like the, the righteousness of God comes from how his people behave. So when you decide, I'm going to take that and just make the righteousness of God just about me being a good person, you are forgetting about the God and what you should be doing. And lastly, I think this is, this is a great one for anyone to know and memorize. John 5 and 39. We get caught up in knowing truth, knowing scriptures, and this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life but it's they that bear witness to me. The Bible is not just a book of 65,000 words to be memorized. It is a revelation of Jesus. It is the speakings and sayings of God that we've seen made flesh in Jesus. That you, you should be searching the scriptures in order to know more about God. Particularly in John, when you see his writings, oh, sorry, particularly in the New Testament, when you see the writings, Every now and then, they'll tell you why they wrote the book. Usually, when the first three verses of the book are somewhere in the last three verses of the book. And over and over again, the reason is that you may know, that you may believe, that you may have eternal life. It wasn't just to know stuff. It wasn't just to have the answers, to be right, or to to know what to tell people, this is a sin, stop doing it. The, The purpose of even opening this Bible is to know Jesus. You don't have life just in the words of the scripture. They bear witness to a person. Amen? Amen. Amen. So hopefully I think we may have one or two more weeks in in this series. This may be the last one. But we should be striving again in each one to know more about God, to, to, to know his glory, to worship him for that God that he is and not like all those others. Amen? You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.